0: Welcome to Gita Wisdom. I'm your host, Joshua Green. Welcome one and all to this very special edition of Gita Wisdom. We have as our honored guest this evening, Kamala Radha. A dear friend. You're uh, in the Philly area, right? Right now? Yeah,
1: you could say that. I'm in Pennsylvania, but I'm I'm more like in currently in Bethlehem area. Okay. All
0: right. What what I've found fascinating watching uh Kamala Radha go deeper and deeper and deeper into her bhakti practice is this development that's happened over the course of the last how many years would you say that you've been involved with hospice?
1: Well, professionally, maybe maybe four, but personally my whole life.
0: Well, there you go. A lifetime calling. It's it was an opportunity for us to discuss something that is related to the foundational teaching of Bhagavad Gita, namely what happens when the soul leaves the body. At the moment of death, something occurs that speaks to the continuity of life and the very purpose of creation. This is no small matter. This is at the very core of all spiritual practices. There are even some uh, verses in Shastra, this revealed text, that suggest the moment of death is the testing ground for how well we've done our yoga practice throughout our life. So by way of a brief introduction, Kamala Radha is, uh, technically, you are called a doula. Am I pronouncing that right? D-O-U-L-A, doula?
1: You are correct.
0: Okay, so you've got to tell us what a doula is. What What does that mean?
1: What is a doula? So the word itself comes from Greek and it actually means servant. Most people I think are familiar with a a birth doula and that is like a non-medical birth assistant. So I'm similar, but I work on the opposite end of the spectrum. I work at the end of your life. I help you plan out what you wanna do with the rest of your time and how that will look like. And I help your family and friends cope with the loss of you.
0: Well, that's going to be an important part of our discussion this evening, the care of the caregivers. Let me just jump right in here. I'm keen to ask you to describe for us what it is that you do. What is a day like for you? How does someone who deals with end-of-life care spend their day? What's it like?
1: Yeah, I mean, every day I don't know what will happen or or who will contact me. But on an average, I wake up to a lot of texts. Well, we could take like a day like yesterday, Monday, into consideration. And besides my regular clients and people I'm helping, I picked up two more cases over the weekend, which are helping people process a loss that just recently happened. You know, with the devotee community, I help a lot in grief support, but I have assisted devotees' last wishes and other sacraments, if you will you know, helping people with the last samskara, but this is faith-based and we talk a lot about our beliefs and scripture, but as an end-of-life doula, I come with a very open and welcoming interfaith scope and that's kind of truly so I can serve everyone.
0: Let's dig into that a little bit deeper. How does your approach to the care that you offer people at that stage of their life differ from let's say other professionals who haven't had bhakti training if you and another doula were caring for the same person what would differentiate the way you approach your work from what the other person would do or would there be any difference
1: always being thankful to the people who allow me into such a sacred part of their life and as we know In the Bhagavad Gita, death is certain For the one who has been born And I just try to make it as beautiful As I can and I just try To help people be okay with it But uh, How does it differ? I I don't know if it does You know, people that work in Spiritual care, most Spiritual interventions are coming from An interfaith basis with a Mood of servitude for the sick and dying Like when you you think of a hospital Chaplain, which, which I am not No matter what faith they are, they will counsel you and help you hold on to your beliefs during those times.
0: What I'm hearing is that in in some sense, there may even be a conscious effort to not be that different uh, from other end-of-life caregivers, that there is an ecumenism to that experience that shouldn't be motivated by a conversional agenda or any particular sectarian agenda that there is a, 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 a uniform approach of compassion and care, as you were saying, that extends across all practitioners.
1: I have to take myself out of the equation to help you leave the way you want to leave. So no matter what your view is on, on, on your, in your belief system, I'm not there to preach to you. Mm-hmm. you know, I'm just there to help you leave in, in your body the way you want to.
0: What, what are some of the causes of the discomfort for someone approaching death? I mean, I'm sure that there's the the fear of the unknown, but what else have you experienced or witnessed in your, in your trade?
1: I would assume that a lot of people are afraid of it being over in the unknown. But what I have come to see is a lot of people that just don't want to leave yet and still have so much unfinished business. And so many moms that still worry about their grown children or books they wanted to read and just not wanting to depart yet. And that's hard. You know, we are so stuck sometimes in these bodies and this, you know, material world. And we're very comfortable. This is all we know. This is all we remember. I think that's what people fear a lot, is that being gone.
0: The fear of not having finished up the work of this life as a doula do you advise do you offer uh, a way to abate those anxieties
1: we can we try to just actively listen as much as possible because most of the time nothing I can say is going to bring you comfort but you talking it out you may come to the solution yourself Mm -hmm. so I use me as a sounding board and I would probably just do some reflective listening to. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you would like to see your brother one more time.
0: Right. You yeah, know? that's fascinating. I've I've spoken with people who serve on suicide hotlines, and they tell me very much the same thing, that sometimes the best thing they can do for someone is just to acknowledge them, to repeat back to them what they've said, to make sure Have I understood you properly, what I heard you say was, that mirroring process, so that someone at least knows that somebody cares. That I've been around enough people who are dying to know that perhaps the the greatest anxiety is thinking I'm going to leave, and who's going to care? What what difference is going? Is it is my has my life made? That's really tragic when people feel that having lived has made no difference.
1: If I were sitting with someone who felt like i didn't have a great life i never contributed to society and i'm leaving feeling like no one's gonna know then maybe what i would work with is helping them plan out a legacy and whatever that looks like to them without me uh Mm. adding to it but i could just say ones that people have come to on their own is like well you could also financially donate what you have if you have that if not Maybe you were a great cook and we, can, we just make index cards of all your recipes and we send them to all your family. So you will live on in that recipe and they will think about you.
0: I, I hadn't thought of that. that that's a wonder, wonderful exercise that is helping someone preparing to transition to create a legacy.
1: Legacy work is a big passion of mine.
0: Is it considered kosher, acceptable in the circles of -of end-of-life care to talk about the soul and transmigration and some of the fundamentals of the Bhagavad Gita that we discuss every week? Or is that considered imposing something on somebody?
1: I really try to just let people come to their own realizations. Because the other thing, I mean, this might be a little esoteric or whatever, but. I kind of feel that whether I'm helping a devotee leave their body or I'm helping a non-devotee leaving their body, I'm still doing Krishna serva mm-hmm. and just me being bedside and being a devotee is helping their soul's journey, whether I tell them or not, right? Just like secretly giving people (laughs) (laughs) Prashadam.
0: Sneak a little cookie in there without them knowing it. Um, We have a question here in the chat box from Julie. Kamilarada, how did you get involved with this work? I'm curious to know that too. What motivated you to want to become a doula?
1: I will have to say that, uh, yeah, it's kooky work. You got to be a little left of center to get into death work. You really do. But um, I I really thank you for this question because it's it's a really important one and I love talking about it. So I have kind of always been intimate with death. You know, I've always had it around me. And so it doesn't affect me like it affects other people. And because of that, I kind of always felt drawn to it because I felt that it, it doesn't scare me or upset me like it does some people, then I should work with it. But specifically, eight years ago, I had a child and she was uh, disabled. She was special needs and she was given a very short window of life and she became my work, my, whatever I did, I did for her. I left my job. I lived in a hospital with her. I, you know, I sat in and rounds with doctors and they would always be like, are you a doctor? Are you a resident? And I'm like, no, I'm her mother. you know, and that that became my job. And when she left this planet, it was me and my ex-husband that were there with her alone, and it was very beautiful and very peaceful. and this the situation happened where the nurse has to come and pronounce the, the body is dead. and when the two nurses came into her bedroom, the nurse the younger nurse who was in her thirties like me saw the baby and she fell on the ground crying and I helped her up. And it was one of those things where at the time it's just instinctual. You're like, Oh, somebody's hurt. You help them up. And I was like, are you okay? And I'm getting her a glass of water. And then like, it's one of those things years later that I'm like, I was helping the nurse when my baby had just left. And why was I given all these tools? I mean, that's for the last eight years in studying bhakti that I'm like, why have I been given this ability? How do I dovetail this into service to Krishna? And then I met mother, Sangita in and Vaishnava care. And I went, Oh, it finally makes sense. Now I know what I'm meant to do.
2: So my name is Sam Simon. Uh, long story, but I, I've written a play called the actual dance, which is about being at the end of life with someone you love. Mm. So it's, the experience of the caregiver, the, or what I'd rather call it, the love partner. But I, there's one particular part of that story in, in the play, but my own experience that I do want to share briefly because of something you said. I was also with my mother at the moment she died. I was the only one. There were two nurses, they were holding the wrists. there were no artificial things, and then they didn't even have a monitor. They turned to me to say, She's gone. And I experienced a white spinning tuft of cloud. I can still see it. At the speed of an instant, leave the room. And it stuttered briefly as I noticed it. And I've come to believe in a more certain way than anything that life exists in each of us and it's a tangible, it is the divine and that it does leave. And I'm just curious if you've run into those experiences or if you're dealing with that. And I would just add the words you used, I would just echo and thank you for a, dignity and beauty in a moment of existential return to source. And Josh knows I'm a nice Jewish boy, but these are universal terms and experiences that I do appreciate you acknowledging that in what you just said. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate people sharing because that's what death positive movement is. If any of you have for that term, the death positive movement.
0: Please tell but, us a little more about that. What is that? I know you're active in that. Describe that for us, if you would.
1: So death positivity is, you know, movement is similar to what people may know is like the sex positive movement. It's just a social movement to normalize talking about these things, to normalize talking about death, what dying is like, without being too crass for some of you, but this is death work, to talk about the corpse and what that actually feels like. I'm also a meditation instructor and we can get into some really crazy stuff and do death meditations where you practice leaving your body and what that feels like. And there's so much other beauty that comes from the death positive movement like art and and creativity. Because if life is a seesaw on one end is birth and one end is death and you can't have one without the other, but we constantly, and this is where we get into our philosophy too. We just, we want sense gratification. We constantly want happiness, but we don't want the darkness, but you can't have light without dark. You can't have a life without birth and death, but we only want to highlight the happy stuff. But that's why, that's why the painful stuff tastes as bad as it does. Mm -hmm. But what if we focused on a philosophy that knew that the, that, you get the good with the bad, then the pangs of material existence won't sting as bad. And I do want to uh, just talk for a second about what Sam had specifically asked about the feeling in the room, right? That's, that's how I was the one question and what you had saw like the, in, and felt in your body that is is not made up. You feel it. I mean, I know that I've been in a room with one person and felt like there were thousands of people in there. But I remember one day in the hospital in the NICU holding my baby and just singing to her. And I felt like these huge presence like around me, like a circle, like protecting her. And even though doctors were coming and telling me things and oh, it's not looking good, or we don't know, she had another seizure. I was like, That's going to be fine. Like these, these things aren't going anywhere. They're here to protect her. But I do know that when she left, everybody left because that was, they were there to hold space for her, to take her, to protect her. And when they left, that's when I felt really alone because it wasn't just the loss of her. It was the loss of whoever, whatever was there was all gone. It was so quiet. It's probably
0: a, a good bridge for us. I'm sorry if I interrupted. Go ahead. You, but to talk about caring for the caregivers, that sense of emptiness that remains after someone's passed away is palpable. I mean, you, can, you sense it in your bones. My stepmom died yeah. last week from COVID related complications. And uh, in fact, we just had two days of Shiva gatherings online yesterday and the day before, which was really unusual. I've never done a virtual Shiva before.
1: Yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah, we, we have yeah. some of those going on currently too.
0: Yeah. Uh, but that sense of, you know, you build your life around the presence of a certain set of people. I mean, these are my, this is my support group. This is my family. These are my friends. These are people I've known all my life. And then in a split second, it's not there. That person is gone. And the thing about death, of course, is there's no negotiating. There's no going back for a do-over. You can't say, wait a minute, can we, can we go back a month? There's something I wanted to say that I didn't get to say. What do you find uh, to be important with regard to the people around someone who is approaching end of life?
1: So, I mean, I would also like to say that, that I, w- I would use, I would call that grief. Even if the person is still here, you can be grieving because you know they're going to go, right? And you don't want them to. And grief is hard. And it's and it can get complicated. And feelings can get misconstrued. What comes across as, as anger, you know, when you think of, like, when people talk about the stages of death, right, by uh, Kubler-Ross, you know, there's this anger thing. But is it really anger or is it that you're really sad? You're really sad because you're losing somebody that's really important. to you. So if somebody says, like, I'm angry – you could say, "Yes, I can I see the sadness in your eyes, and then immediately they go, "Oh, maybe, maybe I'm just sad, and really, that's when it comes to just validating what they're feeling there's this thing where with grief where people want it to go away, like they'll come to me or a counselor, and they say, like, "I lost somebody three months ago, six months ago, five years ago, twenty years ago, and I have this grief, and I just want it to go away, and that's when you have to have the conversation where you tell them, it doesn't go away. You just learned to sit with it differently. And this is when Eastern philosophies really come into play because this is being equipoised. This is mindfulness because as these things come to you, like almost like PTSD, I see a sock. It reminds me of my daughter. Instead of me going, oh my God, I can't think about it. I go, okay, here here comes the feeling. I'm going to let it resonate in me. I'm going to honor it and know that this is temporary and it will pass. No, it won't last like this forever. It can't rain forever. And so in that way, a cloud can pass over you. But sometimes it's a monsoon and it feels like it's never going to stop raining, but it will. It just takes time and you have to be patient. You just have to be patient.
0: So, acknowledging the emotions, not denying them.
1: Acknowledging and validating.
0: Wonderful. Other questions? Uh, yes. Go ahead, Sandra.
1: So, first of all, Hari Krishna,
3: thank you so so much. This is this work is also very meaningful to me in the work I do with people with cancer. But I wanted to uh, just also address what Sam said. I had a very similar experience when my mother passed away, where I literally looked at her and saw and felt like the life force leave and shoot up through the corner of the room. And it was like, time stood still. And then it was just complete silence. And it, it has informed the work that I do being present with her for that. But I also just wanted to mention that one of the things she had said to us as a family before she passed was, you all get to go on with your lives. I will be grieving for you. Like, when you were talking about people aren't finished. And so it was so important to acknowledge that for her so that she, that we acknowledged her grief. She knew we as a family would continue, but how hard that was for her to let go uh, of her, her, her life. So, yeah. And this is just a wonderful discussion right now. There's also, we have our families, members and humans that pass away, but I'm dealing with an animal that is that end of life. And
1: uh, yeah, yeah. I, I know not to interrupt you, but I just, I, I saw it, but maybe it's gone now. Somebody had messaged in the chat. Like I, I was familiar with doula, but only in relation to, to childbirth. But I was going to say there are, you know, end of life or death doulas like me that work in specific things such as pet loss mm-hmm. and people specialize in that people. Um, there's abortion doulas because that is a very hard transition and, and subject for somebody to handle. And, majority of the time someone is alone with that so there's a lot going on with this movement so then that loss hits differently too yeah well he's he's right in the midst of it so we're i I don't know what's
3: happening but i appreciate this discussion at this time because because if
1: you want to talk about this further and what that will feel like please contact me thank you you're welcome And I, I will say with, um, you know, even though in this, in this chat, we're doing a lot of talking about planning and how it can go and what as a doula you can expect. But I would say that a big thing that I, I always want people to understand is flexibility in, in everything, but especially in this, like if anyone here has had a child, they will probably know that now they say, oh, we don't call it a birth plan. We call it birth wishes. It's the best case scenario situations. And the same can be going about planning your death. Even just saying it like planning your death. How could you plan a death? You, you have, you can make these things that you would like, but you have to have a little bit of flexibility. And this flexibility is also so important right now because so many of us are isolated and you may be losing loved ones that you don't get to physically see one more time to say that last goodbye. And that's sad and unfair. And my job would be, how can I help you cope with that?
0: Hey, listen, if anybody wants ideas for how to plan your departure, I'll give you my mother's phone number. She's planned it out in such excruciate, Spider-Man Turn Out the Dark was not as well choreographed as my mom's farewell party. She's got it down to the music coming in, the music going out. She had me design the card with the photo. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, Listen, the whole my, grand- my grandmother was the same way. My grandmother, you know, came from Ukraine, and I'm first generation in this country. And she was, you know, she buried two, three kids, two husbands. She couldn't wait to die. She would tell me, and anytime <laughs> Anytime I came to the house, she would be like, do you like this porcelain statue? i go, yeah, it's beautiful. You can have it when I'm dead.
0: <laughs> Harry Kirtan, you had your hand up a moment
4: ago. I did, and I do, but now I don't. But thank you for acknowledging me. Come I just want to
1: go like this to your beard.
4: Uh, I'm very glad that you approve. I feel validated having it on account of your interest in it. And I I hope at least the circumstances change so that that is at least theoretically possible, although I'm not anxious for you to actually do that.
3: I'm sure you're not. Um,
4: Anyway, thank you very much for uh, everything you've shared with us so far. It's been very, very uh, illuminating and inspiring. I'm curious to know how you handle situations where the mental wheels are starting to come off mm. as you head into the home stretch because you can start with wishes and plans when one is still coherent thinking somewhat clearly i have had the experience of trying to manage someone who was not thinking clearly and it was extremely difficult and i'm just wondering how you know what has your experience been with that and and how do you deal with that
1: it's hard you know, it's hard. I have one, I mean, I can't, hospice, the term hospice is usually like in the last six months, they usually say, but I had one person with dementia that it had been like two years of dementia and then on a hospice, then improve, then get back and then back and forth. And no idea who her grandchild was. It was, I, I want to say from what I experienced it was harder on the family than the person because they were just so confused. So when it comes to that type of anxiety in the body, you can do different sort of medications at that point because there's no real I mean you could try some guided meditations, but through that agitated state, it's pretty advanced at that point. And I would say that one of the things is I remember also with my grandmother when she was getting ready to leave. And we had a nurse that was coming in to assess her. You know, they give you pamphlets and all this stuff. And this woman, so sweet, just sat down with me because I was like 23 at the time and just held my hand and said, I'm going to tell you something nobody ever tells you. You see it in movies sometimes, but no matter how out of it they are, there's going to be a stage where you're going to think they're getting better because they're going to jump up and want to cook a whole meal for everybody. She's like, that's when it's going to happen." There's something unexplainable that happens when you finally have the acceptance where you have some sort of form of clarity or energy. And that was good because I think a lot of people go into it, they go, oh, she's better. Oh, we're going to have more time together. And then it immediately happens. But to bring it back a little bit to what you were saying, I know that there was one specific case where I was bedside and it was middle of the night, but I was just holding space for the family. And this person was so agitated that they were just trying to climb out of their hospital bed. And I had to like push them back down just to like calm them down. They were like trying to escape and having to put the bed rails up. And it was really hard for me because it was one of those things where I want to, you know, you go into it wanting to be this like spiritual caregiver and you just want everything to be beautiful and do aromatherapy and all stuff. But, you know, it's not, it's not always easy. And so I felt a little conflicted that I had to be a little, no, stay here. But I have to kind of tell myself what that's what they needed at the time.
0: Well, Karina, Karina, please go ahead.
5: Hi. I want to know how young is a good age to tell a child, you're going to die, all your friends are going to die, I'm going to die.
1: <laughs> okay, so this is great. I, I appreciate this question. It's a good one. I can tell you what to do and what not to do. So if you have a child who's, you know, younger than eight and it says to you, like, you know, what is death? You could just give them a simple childlike answer, such as it's the end of this life. And depending on your belief system and your, your family, you could tell them you are going on to another life after this life, another place. If you're in a more agnostic situation, you could just say, we don't know what happens after that. But I even think that's a little heavy. I think you just say, that's the end of this life that as you know it, you know, and I could tell you that my father, when I was around that age, like eight was probably, I think I was probably seven. And I had said, You know, what happens when you die? And he's like, they put you in a box and worms eat your brain. Probably not the best answer to give a child. (laughs) But then again, look where I am now. So, I mean, maybe, maybe it was the right one, but... Um, so I would say you just, you do childlike answers, like how you explain anything. How do you explain anything that's going on in this world right now? How do you explain the discrimination and the current presidency? You have to make it simple and you have to let them feel comforted. And let them know darn, their- the,
0: uh, the same question comes up in Holocaust studies. At what age should we begin to describe for young people what happened to Jews 80 years ago? And, you know, there's uh, a, such a wide range. You can have an eight-year-old who is extremely precocious and is capable of absorbing information on the level of a 12-year-old. Then you can have a 12-year-old who has not yet Evolved sufficiently intellectually, and for whom that kind of information would be absolutely devastating. So it's. Um, I think we have to be cautious. Veering toward the side of caution, I think, would always be a good guiding principle. But uh, yeah, yeah Kamala Rada, are there resources that parents could turn to for that?
1: Yeah, there are. There's a there's a great website called Resources for Grief that I use a lot. Uh, there's also just grief.com, which is David Kessler's website, and David Kessler did a lot of work with Kubler-Ross and the stages of dying and the stages of grief. But there's also a, a book together about children and grieving. Now that's grieving the loss of a child and how to cope with children that are grieving, and they're all essential. I was also just thinking about, uh, you know, we were just saying about like a, you know, different children at different ages and their maturity. But I also for me personally, I take into your own subtle bodies that go with that, such as, like, I'm an empath. I have high, I have sensitive personality. So even seeing those things as a teenager are traumatic to me. Right. You right. know, because I didn't, at that young adolescent age, I don't have the armor that I do now at 40.
0: Kamala Rada, I have to tell you, this is... An absolutely memorable conversation. Uh, really, so grateful to you for taking the time to be with us here. We I feel like it
1: flew by too. I saw, we're we at the end already?
0: We have a, uh, what do we have here? We've got another ten minutes. That's it.
1: And and I want to just say that you know, just before when we're both talking about our our my my grandmother, your mother, you know, and we're like laughing and about their plans and everything. That's what I really want to want everyone to focus on. I was like, see. Uh-huh. That's not scary. That's not like this big cloaked figure that we make it. It can be beautiful and happy.
0: My mother, bless her heart, expects now that whenever I'm going to come to see her, I'm going to bring a new joke. <laughs> it's, it's always a joke about death. So, I mean, I'm going through the archive, you know, because those jokes are kind of buried back 20, 25 years in the filing cabinet. Yeah. You no, know, yeah. <laughs> to dig up all these old jokes about, you know, the two guys, they love baseball, they decide, where <laughs> it goes gonna get word back is there baseball in heaven so one guy goes the phone rings and the guy says oh is that really you're me, was there baseball in heaven and i got yeah. good news and bad news you know good yeah. News, yeah there's baseball in heaven bad news is you're pitching tuesday you
1: know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> an- <laughs> there's somebody named mary that says they have a question i don't know if she can unmute herself
5: how do you deal with the situation where the person who is planning their own death their wishes conflict with what would work for their children. Work work for what? For their children. For their children. So let me be very specific. It was my desire to be cremated and to have my ashes taken to a place where I grew up. When I told that to my daughter, she took it extremely hard. And the reason was because for her cremation, it brings to mind the... um, not the crematorium. So when she hears about remaining a body, this is what it means for her. And it was really, really hard for her to imagine that. And so now I have this dilemma. What's more important? What I want, you know, my final wish or what she's going to be dealing with at that time?
1: Great. Thank you. This is a great question, Mary. And this is a lot of what I deal with. So if I were your doula, right, and we are planning your final wishes and you explain that to me just like you have my job would be to to talk to you about how important the cremation part is to you and let's let's talk it out and then you'll see, no, this is really what I want. When I picture this, this is really what I want. Or if, if, if oh, maybe it's not that important to me. And then if it is very important to you and this is what you want done and this is your life, then it will take me and you finding a way to explain that to your family you know, and and then understanding why your daughter finds it so upsetting, you know, like you just said, like it, it brings up these images, but it could also just be like the finality of it, of you actually being gone, not a grave that she can visit. And that might be what she's really hurting from. It's It, it could be deeper. It could be deeper. And maybe then we'd have to talk about not even just your belief system. We could, because it depends on maybe your daughter's belief system. We could just talk about how cremation is ancient, not just in India. I mean, in Argentina, you know, you know, cemeteries are a fairly new thing. This is just what humans did because of what we, of how we discard and get rid of, you know, the body. And we would probably break it down in something like that. That's how I would handle that. We'd plan out the conversation and we'd find out what really matters to you. I mean, it is, it is your body.
5: Wonderful question. It's interesting that you pointed out the fact that, There might not be a place, a grave to visit, which is exactly what I don't want there to be.
1: So in depending on, yeah, I I get that too. So depending on what your last wishes are, if that's something that's upsetting to her, that she just kind of still wants you, then maybe she could have a portion of you, like a portion of your, it's true. She could have a portion of your ashes, whether she wants an urn so she could talk to you, whether she has it made into some beautiful jewelry, which they can do now. Because carbon is carbon. You know, your ashes, the majority can go wherever you want. But maybe if she could have something tangible, it, it will it will help her cope.
5: Very, very helpful. I do. Thank you very much. And You're thank welcome. you for this, this conversation. It's been You're welcome.
0: Uh, Yadunath, you and Bhakta have um, the final question, I think.
5: Hi, Krishna Kamala. Hi, well. Hi well. So wonderful to see you. Thanks for sharing everything that you have. It's been wonderful. Uh, I was just wondering if you might share any experience that you've had that stands out to you as particularly moving or mystical or something that stands out in some way. I'm sure you've seen, experienced so much.
1: Any, yeah, one specific one? Oh, geez. I also don't want to
5: put you on the spot. So, you know.
1: I don't get uncomfortable like I'm an open book. I talk about this stuff. It's more the time I have to check in with other people because I could just be talking about death and they're all freaked out. So <laughs> but I figure at this point you've all you've all dug your heels in and are oh, okay yeah. with it. Well, then let's let's go back to talk about my my daughter's death. I, I think I'd probably go there because that was the catalyst for my my life as far as I'm concerned, because to outlive a child is always hard. And that's also what, what helped me become a devotee. I truly believe that she, she helped me become a devotee, because I had a normal pregnancy, everything was completely fine. And then when she was born, she just was not breathing. And then the rest of my life, the rest of her life, let's say, was surreal. I I can't, and I just tried to hold on to whatever I possibly could. And I felt so much energy and mysticism, and I just didn't, and I didn't really have any sort of, Faith or spirituality practice, but I just whatever anyone brought to me, you know, a woman I worked with would bring me a blessed cross, someone would bring me a rosary, somebody would bring me an evil eye like the whole thing was like a shaman, you know, like room, like it was just whatever talisman you could bring me, I was accepting, mm-hmm. and I loved that. And then when she the day that she left, we chose me and my ex-husband, that we wanted to be alone with her. We knew that this was finally going to be the day. And it took all day. It took all day. And very similar to what I was talking about before, just this feeling, there's so much energy, there's so many things in the room. And even though I'm just holding her, and we would just take turns in a rocking chair holding her, and I would sing to her, and then my ex-husband would he at the time he was reading tom sawyer and he would read excerpts from that and it was just this beautiful quiet space you know we didn't want it to be in a hospital with the pull socks and the beeping we just wanted it to be very beautiful and very peaceful and um it was so beautiful i, I couldn't have ha- i couldn't have asked for something nicer for her and but it, it, it gets hard when they leave And my grief was hard, and I did everything "quote unquote" right. I went to therapy, I went to counseling, I had a chaplain, I had a social worker, but it still doesn't get rid of it. You and the grief got complicated, and it took me years to work it out. And what I've learned is, besides the stages of death, you have another stage, the sixth stage that people talk about, which is called finding meaning. And if you could find meaning in this loss, if you could find purpose, can if you could find servitude you can dovetail that into your life, then the pain, it doesn't hurt as bad. It doesn't.
5: seems that you've and, done that spectacularly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks. Yep. Um, but it's the only thing that works. It's the only thing that feels right anymore is just to serve serve people.
0: I'm sure that I'm uh, expressing uh, a feeling that is shared by everybody on this call here this evening that uh, Kamala Rada, you've given us an extraordinary hour of deep reflection, wisdom, insight, important things to think about, some practical suggestions of things that we can do. And I, from the bottom of my heart, I just thank you for being with us and, and giving us a chance to uh, to poke at you and your experiences as a doula from different sides. And uh, maybe uh, everyone on this call, you can uh, join me in thanking uh, Kamala Rada with a, a virtual standing applause. How's that?
1: I just want to, just real quick, if I could just say one thing, I know we're running out of time, but I just wanted to just briefly just talk about grief because, because of death doula, people always kind of think that it's about that, but I do a lot of work after someone leaves and grief is really my passion. And I really, really want people to know that they can contact me if they're needing help processing their grief. And that I think grief is a very important thing because if you just even look at the definition in the dictionary, it talks, it says, especially with death. So you can grieve for a lot of things. And right now, collectively, we are grieving. We are grieving in isolation. We are grieving COVID-19. We are grieving because black lives matter and this needs to be processed and we need to deal with it and we need to hold space for people.
0: How can people reach you?
1: So I'm on everything on social media, everything. I'm Kamala Radha Devi Dasi. If you want me specifically for any sort of uh, doula work, doula is such a, it is a strange word. Some people say end of life doula, death doula. I recently heard of a book uh, that's actually called The Soul's Midwife. Hmm. So I've been thinking, I think I like the idea of being a soul midwife, <laughs> but um, you could also contact me through VaishnavaCare.org.
0: Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um One and all, what a pleasure to be spending time with you again. As always, these two days are the highlight of my week, and especially <laughs> to have a guest like Kamla Radha, who um, makes it all so very deeply worthwhile. Have a wonderful time this coming week, one and all. Please join me if you would in the Vaishnav Pranam. Vanchakalpa to Vishnu.
2: The-
0: have Thank a wonderful you. evening. Thank you for your company, your friendship, your participation. We'll see you all again you. next week. Be well.
1: Thank you. Okay.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye bye, everyone. Hare Krishna. Hare, Hare, Hare Krishna. Krishna. <laughs> bye bye. Thank you for listening to Gita Wisdom. For more information, please visit gitawisdom.org.